I'm Dwayne Schultes, and on this best of edition of the Vital Health Podcast, we're looking back on the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic and discussions I had with Ivor the Fat Emperor Cummings and statistician Miriam Sturkenboom, both of whom in very different ways were at the center of the debates as to the appropriate response to the pandemic. We begin with our interview with Miriam Sturkenboom, whose vaccine safety monitoring platform called vac for eu found itself at the center of a tsunami of vaccine rollouts and safety studies in the EU. This podcast was first broadcast in October of 2021. When did you know that COVID-19 was going to be different? When did you know that things were going to get bad and serious? I think we realized uh, only in January 2020, like, of course, the world knew that this was happening over Christmas in, in China. Uh, but uh, I think in January, end of January, when WHO gave the warning, I mean, the world realized that this was coming very close and spreading quickly. So that's when we really started to worry. And where were you in the project at that point? Where were you in the infrastructure and getting set up? I mean, were you ready or was it still like, oh my God, here we are and we've still got stuff to do? So we were at the point that, you know, the, the advanced project that was really designing and testing an ecosystem had finished. We had set up this organization and then just in January, it was like going through, it was signed by the King of Belgium as a non-for-profit international association. So we were formally existing, so that was good. Uh, but we had to do the entire, uh, you know, setup of the organization and, and doing that. So we needed to kickstart that uh, a lot. But so there was an entity, but the internal organization wasn't completely uh, set up. But we managed to do that quickly. Talk about being at the right place at the right time. That's crazy. Yeah. Yes, it's crazy. <laughs> COVID nineteen is somewhat odd in that the impact is quite heterogeneous. If you're under 20, the impact is somewhere around, the mortality rate's one in a million, give or take, at least in the U.S. CDC data. But if you're over 80, you have a 20% chance, one in five of mortality. I mean, it's very, very devastating once you get over 65. What specific challenges does this create from a public health standpoint? Well, my work actually is not impacted so much by that, but it's it's a very clear curve, as you say, and I think it has been dealt with uh, adequately in, in rolling out the vaccines uh, to the elderly first and the persons at risk, and now increasingly going to younger ages so that, you know, those that benefited most immediately were vaccinated first. Uh, so I think we recognized it, that this was the curve and vaccination rollout programs have been adapting to that. Some countries were better than others. I mean, the mm-hmm. Flanders and the Netherlands were very good. Whereas the U.S. tried to play politics and was trying to give it out to people who worked for the government, teachers and things. Why do you think that this got politicized? Well, the WHO gave some recommendations, um, but any every country then may actually implement it differently. So I, I don't know what the, you know, the local or the national reasoning was, but it's clear that there were some differences in the implementation, although in Europe, we have been more or less uh, aligned uh, with, the, with the strategies. You know, before COVID-19, those of us who you know work in the sector, you know, we'd been saying that vaccines were becoming radically underinvested. Matter of fact, people were pulling capacity out. How different is the environment now? Is this completely changed? Well, I think it has changed radically. I mean, and I think many people, every person in the world has seen what the impact of vaccines can can be. So going from complete lockdowns to, you know, having hospitals flowing over, I mean, I think now the situation is much different, at least in the 
more developed parts of the world. I mean, we have a lot to do still to, to, to go to all the sites, but, but that's what we see as an impact now. And, and we had forgotten, I think many people had forgotten what, what vaccines may be able to do because we don't see the, the, the diseases anymore like polio or so, so the impact of those vaccinations are not so visible. And I think that's where we are now and that we see the potential. So there will be investment. There is a lot of investment for, for the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation through the Commission, through many funding organizations to have better epidemic preparedness. And that includes capacity to actually uh, manufacture vaccines if they are needed. Belgium and the EU broadly initially tried to get a low price where they were willing to sacrifice access initially for price. And what became very obvious very quickly in the case of Belgium, you saved roughly 120 million euros, but it cost you 30 billion in GDP. <laughs> uh, there was a German finance minister who said, boy, instead of locking down, we should have invested in factories. Do, do you think that there's going to be real change now, or is this just lip service? Are, is there going to be a real push to make sure this doesn't happen again from an infrastructure standpoint? This is what we see. And, and uh, you know, if there is no market or if there's no gain, uh, people may shift their investments to other Pieces, but I hope we have learned this lesson. The same was true for the uh, the safety monitoring infrastructures. Like they build up, and then you know, once the the pandemics are gone, you know, they they are not maintained. So there is not a solid uh, investment in in the required capacity or the readiness to address this uh, if needed. And and I hope this lesson will be learned. But we know that you know there are always priorities, and they may start to differ when this fades away again. What's potentially interesting now, though. We have an mRNA vaccine, which was initially developed as an anti-cancer agent. So now we may be able to come at some of these diseases, you know, HIV, for example, which is a coronavirus. Hopefully there's an understanding that having this infrastructure and investing in this infrastructure, not seeing healthcare as a cost, but actually seeing this as a potential benefit, maybe there will be a willingness to try and lead on some of these technologies. I mean, one of the leading companies is a German company, one would hope the university where you're at, at Utrecht, do you see new PhDs trying to go into this? Uh, in, in the Netherlands, biotech is good. So we have <laughs> uh, some nice biotech uh, spin-offs, but it's quite complex what is happening. So the mRNA platform, for example, which has been so successful, I mean, it's very different from one place to the other. So it's not just the platform, it's also how you produce it and the lip and the particles around it to protect it. So we saw with CureVac that you know, the, the mRNA platform actually was not as effective. So there is a lot of like even production stability, how to present it that's quite different, even on a mRNA platform. You know, the dose in the Pfizer, uh, the antigen in, in the Pfizer vaccine is much less than in the Moderna vaccine. And so there is a lot, even amongst mRNA platforms, there is a lot to learn uh, how to deliver the best dose and have it in a stable manner. So I think that's where the improvement needs to be done how you can keep it stable, even if it's not at minus 80, uh, but, you know, in, in a bit better cold chain ways, but, you know, not as complicated as for the for the initial vaccine. So there, there is a lot of improvement that needs to be done. So this is an area of active research around the world. Yeah. Obviously, Germany, a lot of the vaccine hesitancy movement started in Germany around Stuttgart 20, 25 years ago. Obviously, France has had issues with uh, a large outbreak of the measles. Do you think governments have done a good job getting around COVID-19 you know, hesitancy with regards to addressing these public health issues and you know, trying to get people more willing 
to accept the vaccination program without going to mandates, which obviously there's a lot of pushback against those now. It's difficult, Wayne, I think, for the, you know, now to speak about whether they have done it right or not. I mean, it's, I, I don't envy the people that were in the front line in communicating, you know, from the public health first about the COVID-19, about the measures to be taken, about the restrictions, the lockdowns, everybody having an opinion, be people being threatened even because of doing their jobs and, and spending nights and days to do it. So, so I don't want to criticize what was being done, but what I can, what I think we see is that initially there was a lot of focus on how fast we now could produce these vaccines. And of course, I mean, we should have been talking much more about how it's possible that you speed up so that the faster production of these vaccines doesn't mean less quality, but actually maybe even better quality than we usually had. But what was lacking? So I think that's where an, an area of communication that should have been done better and be prepared better. Like, But, you know, I, I understand that there is just so much you can do. But that's an area, I think, where we could have been doing better. And now we see the hesitancy. So and people have taken positions and then it's difficult to, you know, to make them change because it seems that people are just seeking for the evidence that confirms their thought rather than for the contrary. But so, again, I, I think... A lot of the vaccine acquisitions at the government level, Pfizer's contract for the initial acquisition wasn't actually for delivery until September last month. It seems like a lot of this is the reaction to, say, the initial banning of the AstraZeneca vaccine, which was sort of ham-fisted in the way it was communicated at the government level. Some could even make an argument now about the way the Moderna has been pulled off the shelf in, in Scandinavia. Is there a real issue here the way there's sort of a reflux in the public health community where a lack of judiciousness in some ways. It's sort of a snap judgment. I think it's important to look at history. So uh, every country is able to make those decisions. So we have like WHO recommendations. We have like EMA, FDA recommendations. Within EMA, uh, EMA can make a recommendation or the PRAC can make a benefit risk assessment. That's what they do periodically. But countries are, you know, able to overrule that or take their own. And, and, and that's what we have been seeing. And I don't think it has led to more understanding. So it's difficult to understand why, you know, in the Netherlands, they continue and in Scandinavia, they pull it off the mark. Sure. But there is a history in Scandinavia and that was with H1N1 and narcolepsy. So they are very vigilant that they don't expose their population to something which may be damaging. Uh, and if there is an alternative, they they probably uh, take that approach. And in France, I mean, there has been major concerns about, you know, the multiple sclerosis after hepatitis B vaccine. So there is a history in each of these countries on the basis of which they take decisions, which may not seem rational or consistent with other countries. But, you know, who's there to judge? I think it's the, they they are the ones that are communicating. And I have different thoughts about this, but... I have a different perspective. So sure. One of the things that's been interesting is seeing the debate around adverse events starting to come out because no one was talking about this. There was a presentation by Dr. Jessica Rose as part of the FDA discussion around boosters, when to boost, not to boost. And it was public. Mm -hmm. and, and she pointed out that there are quite a lot of adverse events that have been happening. Are we doing enough around the monitoring of the adverse events, do you think, because there is something going on there. There was a recent study that showed that, you know, there's a serious adverse event for one out of every 400 vaccines, which caught my eye. That did seem quite higher than I was anticipating. Are we doing a good job? Okay, so that's a big question, Duane. So are we doing a good job? I think so. So what I'm seeing, at least in the parts of the world that I, 
I can see directly. What's being done is there was a lot of preparedness in terms of calculating incidence rates that would inform you to assess whether, you know, what we actually see now as reported adverse events are what you would expect because disease also occurs naturally. So what we are tasked to do with this after vaccination is that you need to see would this otherwise also have occurred or is it more than you would expect? And I know that many people are looking at that uh, continuously, like monitoring whether the uh, observed rates are higher than what we would expect. So that's number one. Then the other thing that has been put in place, which is in addition to what we were usually doing, which is this constant monitoring of the adverse events, is what we call cohort event monitoring, which is like the V-safe activities in the US, but it's also in Europe that people actually can sign up at the moment that they are vaccinated to actually report their adverse events. So that's like what we would call active surveillance. And that has been done. And at the same time, there are also systems in place now that if there is something occurring, they would actually be able to very rapidly assess whether that signal is a true signal or whether, you know, what is the access rate, like how, and, and this is all the information that is needed to reevaluate the benefit risk ratio. So we need to generate data that informs the regulators to reassess that benefit risk ratio. And I think there is a lot of data coming and it's very rapid. The speed now is like so different than it was with H1N1. Sure. So nowadays it's like there is a signal and uh, the next PRAC meeting, you need to provide the evidence for, you know, to substantiate that signal or not. Whereas in the past, the people were working for months and even years to get the right answer. So I think a lot of people are doing their utmost best to get the evidence there as much as possible, fast as possible. Yeah. And how much of your work at VAC for EU is just that, sort of monitoring for safety signals in the context of... Um, so what we are doing is more the epidemiological study. So not uh, for the EMA, we are working with the cohort event monitoring. So, you know, collecting these adverse events and have nice des- dashboard for the EMA so they can look at it. But then there are also the studies that need to be done just to compare, you know, is is... Is this occurring more often after Moderna or after, you know, Pfizer vaccine or with the AstraZeneca? So comparison between vaccines, which is typically not done at the pre-licensure stage where they just have versus placebo. So we try to assess and and provide the, the numbers, like how often does this occur? And is it more frequent after one vaccine than the other? And does that differ between different groups like age, gender? Uh, back, you know, comorbidity, et cetera. So that's the work we are doing. Number crunching. <laughs> <laughs> we love Data number crunching. <laughs> we love number crunching. You know that. <laughs> one, one of the things that's been happening, if you look at the debate, particularly in the U.S., where this has gotten so politicized, what's intriguing is there's, you know, the vaccine hesitance group has sort of been lumped in as sort of Trumpists. And MIT did a really interesting study where they surreptitiously, quietly, went into some of these chat rooms where these people were talking in Facebook and on Twitter and on, you know, 4chan and some of these other blogs. And what they found was rather than just being, you know, nut nutbag rubes, they were actually looking at a lot of the epidemiological data and discussing the risk factors. There was a recent study that was put out as part of the six month. Obviously, we have a couple uh, vaccines that are still under conditional approval. So they're required to do six month safety studies and efficacy studies. And one of the studies that was published you know, proving hospitalization, you know, protection against hospitalization, fine, that's the end point. But if you flip to the back and looked at the all-cause death, which they have to publish, and 44,000 people in two arms, you know, 15 deaths vaccinated, 14 deaths unvaccinated, it's like, whoa, holy cow. 
are we really into a situation now where you know, we've really targeted very well the really highly at-risk group, putting these, like we're hearing with Joe Biden now, saying we're going to fire you if you don't get vaccinated and you're 35, or basketball players who are 28 who run you know, five kilometers an hour playing the game and are in exceptional health are now being told if they don't get vaccinated at 28 years old, they're going to be fired, a million-dollar job. Are, are we doing the right things there? Are we going overboard? What should we be doing here? You know, they're... they're- at least two components for why or two reasons for why you get vaccinated. So first one is to protect yourself. And and I think it's clear that not for everybody on a personal level, that's going to be the same decision. And if you have low risk of COVID, then why should you get vaccinated? But it's not just the only reason of why you need to get vaccinated. It's also to protect others that can actually not be protected. So we often forget this solidarity principle and, and which we have as a society. I think that we should not just protect ourselves, but also those around us that are more vulnerable. And I think that's where the world is quite different now in that some people just don't want to take that step to, to take that small risk that you may have because something may happen after the vaccination, although they seem to be very safe. There is a potential, very small potential for an adverse event and, and to weigh it against you know, the benefit that it may be for society. So if we would get 95%, you know, vaccinated, we would be in a situation that those that actually do not have the benefit of the vaccine because they're immunocompromised would not to be worried so much and, and could go out. So I think that discussion needs to happen. And I don't know whether you should, you know, oblige people. I don't think that that usually works, that you really oblige them, but they should be, they may be nudged or, or you know, be told like what, the good job it is that they would actually protect the others. Like the problem is, I think when you put in these mandates where you know you start saying we're going to threaten your job or your livelihood, people start digging in their heels. This becomes an issue of individual sovereignty, and I think that that's the problem. Exactly. You know, I think it be, yeah. it becomes a question of right and wrong as a question of yeah. moral right and wrong. Unfortunately. Yeah. So I think we we should be able to convince them with arguments, not with threats. That's the. I think in general. What I, I, think. I agree with you. I would hope that common sense... Even with my kids, it works. <laughs> <laughs> One would hope with common sense it would prevail. Now an internet and social media legend, it's likely you've stumbled onto Ivor Cummings dissecting the impact of the response to the pandemic with detailed graphs and analysis on YouTube or Twitter. Before the COVID-19 era, Ivor was a biochemical engineer and had a large following as a presenter on cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and obesity on his very popular website, The Fat Emperor. My interview with Ivor was recorded on February 5th, 2021. Ivor, you had a very successful career and a very large following in obesity. What drove you to take on COVID-19? Why the change in direction? Yeah, well, I was working on all of what you mentioned there. And we brought out a movie a couple of years ago about heart disease and the calcium scan of the heart and how to prevent heart disease. So I'd spent, you know, eight years on metabolic research and modern chronic disease prevention. So a load of that stuff. And then in March... I didn't take uh, too much notice of the SARS-CoV-2 thing that was developing. I was so busy. Uh, My wife and others were really nervous. And I looked it up and I saw the Chinese initial data, uh, which was, you know, 10 times risk if you have metabolic disease and, you know, the aged were affected. And I saw the Diamond Princess and I looked into their numbers. You know, the people are all on the Petri ship and kind of compressed into a 10 times the density of New York with shared air conditioning. 
And for me, I looked at that and I saw the actual fatality and the ages. And I said, okay, it's going to be a real nasty one, but it's going to be the very aged overwhelmingly and metabolically, you know, unwell uh, and immunocompromised. So probably going to be really tough, but not much worse than a severe flu season. And once I decided that, I, I didn't overly look at it because I was so busy. Uh, but then the lockdowns kind of started coming in at the end of March in Ireland and Italy. I began to see all the things going on there. And Italy, it was 98.6% of the sad passings uh, had comorbidities. The average age was in the 80s. So looking at Italy and the heat they were under, I suspected they had a lot of aged um, metabolic um, kind of dysfunction, which they do. They're the vitamin D black spot of Europe. Um, and I saw that the numbers and the demographics were what I, I had predicted. Uh, so again, I didn't get too concerned, but then the lockdowns all came in. Now, I didn't agree with those from my perspective and from looking into transmission of influenza, that they would have much effect once your seasonal trigger occurs and you're into your epidemic. It's kind of too late uh, to try and stop it spreading. Uh, but because they were sustained and when they would not stop the lockdowns after we'd passed the curve and the ICU was coming down uh, for a seasonal illness and the deaths were coming right down, they clearly didn't want to take the lockdowns out. Right. They brought in a four-month plan to slowly take out the lockdowns. And I thought, but but this is gone for the summer. Yeah. And And I got so concerned at the way they were behaving and the WHO clearly wanted lockdowns. And the lockdown technology had come from China, not a great source. Uh, I got more and more concerned. And then I began to research it deeply and got drawn in heavily. Now, this is interesting, boy. There's a lot there to unpack. <laughs> Let me start first with the Diamond Princess, because you bring that up. Now, what's fascinating about the Diamond Princess, and you're right, it's a Petri dish. It's our first experiment with good, robust data. Johnny Anitas from Stanford did a very, very solid analysis that got published in STAT. And I remember reading that, coming to the similar conclusions that you had drawn just now, saying, okay, you have comorbidities. Everyone who um, was susceptible and passed was over 70 years old, high rates of obesity, very specific condition that we need to control. Okay. And then four days later, Neil Ferguson's analysis comes out of Imperial College saying there's going to be, you know, multiples of more death. And all of a sudden we start following this lockdown strategy. How do you think we got to that point compared to what we saw in the hard data out of the Diamond Princess? Yeah, that, that was the thing that shocked me. That drove all of the rhetoric of lockdowns and the actuality of lockdowns. So yeah, the Diamond Princess, at the time it was around eight or nine people, I think, out of the 3,700 on the ship. Yeah, And uh, it turns out in the end, yeah, there were late 70s into the 80s were the ages, uh, pretty much of the passing. And the people who did not pass there was 0% mortality rate in the non-aged, right? you know, in the Petri ship. So I, I, I looked at the time and I was approximating a 0.1 or 0.15% maybe, and heavily stacked towards the aged. So I just couldn't understand Imperial because if there's 60 million people in the UK and you apply that, you might, you might say 60K and heavily in the aged who have, sadly, they have less time. So the quality adjusted life here is going to be lost will be nothing like the Spanish flu and nothing even like the 1957 flu, which hit people much younger. So I just couldn't understand it. One of the things you've done then is you've unpacked 
and I find this work really interesting. You've gone back and done a lot of research on the previous opinions of the CDC and the WHO about how to handle pandemics, looking at the other influenza outbreaks from 68, et cetera, where you've gone through and said, well, here were the recommendations before and here are the recommendations now. Can you tell us about what you found when you've gone through and looked at the data and done the research about how these recommendations have shifted over the SARS-CoV-2 outbreak? That's a that's a kind of an almost a crazy thing because we've just said the WHO took a single data point. They looked at Chinese curves, made the assumption that what the Chinese were doing had made those curves be thus and be small and decided we need to do that. But in November, October, November 2019, they published their latest pandemic management guidelines, big document. And in there, under social distancing and such like, they clearly not recommended, not recommended multiple times in the area of isolation of exposed individuals. Now, what that means is no isolation and containment of people who may have been exposed. They recommended symptomatic you know, which makes sense. And on the test and trace, they said there is no evidence for test and tracing being functional or useful after a virus has broadly entered a region or a population. You know, it's something you do when you've got a couple of cases that came in off a boat and you maybe try and contain it. Like by March, when the lockdowns were happening, we knew that the first people had been sick in Europe, like in January, and maybe as early, we know now, November, it was in circulation. Sure. Now, there was probably dormancy, you know, but it was in, in circulation for months. So to do lockdowns when the thing is kind of all over the place, it broke every rule in the October 2019 guidelines. And those were based on not just influenza. People sometimes say, oh, but that's not uh, coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2. No, but they share all of the core things you'd have guidelines for. It may be more transmissible. Uh, it may be more impactful, but it doesn't change the guidelines of how you manage it. But they got rid of all of that and forgot it literally overnight. And we have to remember, based on only one single observation, and observational data is very weak, even if you do a study, because you're only seeing correlations, but they took one single observation, not even multiple, and it was China did this. There go. Those curves not too bad. Lockdown made curves not bad. Yeah. We're off, guys. That's it, like. And after that, the rest is kind of history because once the people started doing them, there blossomed this enormous belief that they had helped. And then after that... There was an addiction to lockdowns, like the only thing you could do. And then masks came, which is... Well, we'll get into the mask issue in a bit. Yeah. But, um, you know, yourself, Dr. Wilfred Riley, quite a few known epidemiologists as well have come out and said, look, you know, lockdowns don't work. WHO itself reviewed its policies and even came out in late summer, early fall and said, no, 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 don't lock down. The U.S. military published an article in New England Journal of Medicine basically saying we don't advocate lockdowns for the U.S. military. Why do you think that we're still stuck on this strategy, given everyone has revised their opinion and say, look, this, this doesn't work? And also, you have a lot of data comparing countries that have locked down and not locked down. Can you empirically tell us what you found? And also, why do you think they're sticking to their guns, as it were? Yeah, well, whether lockdown works, uh, it's not that lockdown does nothing, because 
it'll do something. Anytime you do something that kind of crazy, something will change in the world, including maybe in transmission, etc. But in terms of empirical, I noted early on, and I was actually a friend of mine who's non-technical, nothing like me, kind of an accountant type. <laughs> and he said to me in April in Ireland, he said, Ivor, is this thing completely kind of crap in a sense? And I said, why? Have you been watching my videos? Because I was raising the possibility then that lockdowns don't really do much and that the impact was not what was being said. And he said, no, no, I never watch your stuff, which was true. <laughs> and the way he worked it out was actually basic logic, that the people working eight to 10 hours a day with no masks back then in the actual epidemic, mixing with all the unwashed people coming in, they had no extra infection or death. So he realized the lockdown, they are not locked down, those people. They're super exposed and there's no signal. The lockdown can't be doing anything substantial. So he actually worked out in raw logic. And it turned out he was largely correct. That is the logic. And then when I looked at all the countries with Sweden, no lockdown, and other countries with lockdown, and did myriad comparisons and looked at the East with Tokyo with no lockdown, um, and looking at some other countries in the Far East, I realized there's no correlation. And then Pandata were one of the first, a panda organization from South Africa, actuaries and, and other people came together seeing what we saw, and they began to do proper analysis, and they published a paper showing 51 countries, stringency of lockdown versus deaths per million. And it was a shotgun plot, and I mean a a simple shotgun blast. There was no relationship. Completely random. Yeah. And then Woods Hole Institute came out and looked at the whole European epidemic and said there is no connection between lockdown, stringency, and deaths per million. And then another one came out, and then another one. And then I was very happy because I thought, okay, I've made my cut based on empirical, based on historical science, uh, based on everything. Lockdown is, is just not the thing to do. It makes no sense. But I was delighted to see now there's papers being published by proper teams doing proper scientific analysis, not my kind of, I'm busy guy, I do basic analysis. But what happened was there's now 30 papers approximately, including Ioannidis, including one in Lancet. In its abstract, it says there's no signal connection between lockdown, lockdown severity, and deaths per million across all the countries. Uh, so Stanford, there's Birmingham, there's Edinburgh, there's Woods Hole. There's just so, so many. German University, I think, in Hamburg. All of these analyses, all saying essentially the same thing, that the curves turned before the lockdown came in, in many cases. And as a result, you've got countries where a lockdown happened to come in when the curve was turning. You've got countries where the lockdown came in after the curve turned. And you've got countries that came in even later and you have every kind of option. And when you analyze them all, there's no signal. When you argue against around 30 papers that have done that, you know, you have to ask yourself, Professor Karl Popper famously, if you find a negative piece of evidence that's pretty solid against a hypothesis, the hypothesis is dead. It's dead. If you have 500 pieces of evidence supporting a hypothesis, it doesn't mean the hypothesis is true. So negative evidence has a vast power compared to positive affirmatory evidence. And no one's thinking this. If there's 30 papers saying lockdown doesn't really help much, you just cannot ignore them. 
but they are ignoring them. Yeah. They're not even producing many papers to say that lockdown works. I mean, the biggest one that gets quoted is from Imperial College, Niall Ferguson's guys. A professor in Germany debunked that completely within a week. Yeah. Right. Stefan Humberg, I think, a mathematics professor and, and a colleague. And they basically show that that paper looked at around eight or nine countries and they included Sweden. So now you're thinking, wow, if they included Sweden, Sweden proves that lockdown doesn't work. So how did, how did they get around that? And what they did basically was the conclusion of the paper was all of the massive draconian restrictions were what caused all the benefit in eight countries. <laughs> and Sweden then, limiting crowds to less than 50 and basic distancing caused the same amount of benefit. <laughs> they, that actually was the paper, and that's been quoted all over the place. And of course, Professor Homburg demolished it. Like you're talking about papers that are clearly absurd up against around 30 papers that are, are very reasonable, but no one cares. So then you're to the second part of the question, why does no one care about the evidence anymore? And then you're into, I think, two effects. One effect is local in each country. Each country got into a panic, put in lockdowns, perceived that they worked, and the terrible thing didn't happen, and that strengthened their belief that they worked. They didn't know about seasonality and that that was clipping the epidemic. So they presumed the lockdown was doing it. They also seem to not know that those epidemic curve shapes have been going on for hundreds of years, millions of years. It's the nature of the viral blossoming and triggering, and then it goes through a, a curve, and seasonality comes into it, and uh, immunity in the community, and uh, multiple factors. But those curves are classic. They seem to forget that. And they're also copying everyone else. So there's a me too. So Ireland's looking to UK. UK are doing a lockdown. Oh my God, we better do a lockdown or we're going to be responsible. And then France is looking at Spain. They're all looking, they're all doing lockdowns, but, but they all forget where the lockdown came from. And I'm sure if they really understood that it came directly from the Chinese Communist Party through the WHO making a single observation and saying this is good and abandoning their guidelines, if they really knew that, they might have said, hold on, guys, now, are we sure about this? Yeah. But it became, I don't know, like a massive group think. And then I'd say when it began to be realized that maybe these things are not so great, you got to cover your political self and you can't start saying it lockdowns are not so great uh, because then you're culpable for the damage you cause the economy and everyone else. So you can't go backwards. So I think they got trapped. And the last thing I'd say on that is, yes, all the governments got trapped in groupthink. They became almost psychotic. The people became psychosed by all the propaganda from the government to tell them, stay safe, get under the bed. And then the people began to demand back to the government to make them safe. So they almost began to ask for lockdown. So that, that's a whole psychosis. But at the top, there's a lot of organizations. We can't get away from the fact, highly conflicted, highly influential organizations who have massive international influence on governments like the World Economic Forum, like all these foundations, like the UN itself is, is capitalizing on this crisis and they've admitted it. And the WHO is, of course, benefiting massively to its prestige and power. So I think all of these big international organizations with hundreds of corporations as their members, like in the case of the World Economic Forum, around 500 top corporations as their partners, 
That's a lot of influence. And all of those are helping push the psychosis. They're not directing it, but they're certainly fueling the psychosis on the ground in the country. It it does bring into question the motivation around the quote-unquote big reset uh, that everyone is talking about. And when you read and when you see people presenting about it, it does strike one like a Bond villain. You expect a Nehru jacket and a Persian cat. Um, I'm a big fan of Occam's razor. I'm also a big proponent of Hanlon's razor, which is uh, incompetence is usually (laughs) an answer more than malice. And I do think that there's just been gross incompetence in this as well. And obviously, maybe some people are trying to take advantage of it. But getting to the uh, Hanlon's razor, the incompetence part, (laughs) let's live, live drilling into that a little bit. You know, yourself, you're a biochemist. Your background's in more in engineering. If we look at Wilfred Riley, he's a social scientist, but with a strong statistical background. If you look at John Neonidas at Stanford, they're sure they're epidemiologists, but they're also very strong statisticians and mathematically founded. Uh, if you look at Martin Koldorf at Harvard, obviously one of the big advocates for the Sweden strategy, he is well known as a very strong analytical statistician. Does it seem like the public health people didn't look at this with the analytical bend? And those of us who've been delving into the numbers with more of an analytical side have been saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, what's going on here? Do you think that there's sort of a rift now about a lack of rigor in some of the analysis that's been thrown out? Yeah, I think so. And I, I think to your point about the razors, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a catastrophic mis- mix of stupidity and malice. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, there's malice from the organizations that are very influential. And from the get-go, there was reporting in March saying we will never go back, be going back to the old normal. And I remember hearing that and just not understanding how on earth can you say that before this thing has even transpired? And they were all saying it. And I said, where's that come from? And I honestly didn't understood. Now I found out later where it came from, sure. from Schwab and the WEF and the books and all the stuff that was actually published. But my main thing is problem solving. You put down all your hypotheses and you're very brutally clear in your diction of what your hypotheses are, because you might have 10 in a complex multi-factor problem, a big one, and you'll have lots of different hypotheses and you must rack and stack them with the evidence for and against with data and links. And then you've got to rise the most likely hypothesis to the top. The numbers is, is where the answer is, like the diamond princess. I mean, that's just a simple example. Sure. It's in the numbers. Right? That's for the answer. You got to put aside emotion. I know it's very sad when there's a bad virus. People die, people suffer. But you have to say that's the virus's fault. You must separate that in a compartment from your brain because you're here to do the best intervention to optimize public health, societal health, and, and overall societal freedoms and important things that are beyond life and death our fundamental freedoms and the strength of our democracy. These are principles. These are almost, you know, we fought wars in the past for principles. Millions and millions died for principles. These are not small things. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Mark Brodine. Our project manager is Gwen O'Loughlin. The Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2023.